does professional indemnity insurance keep you up at night? Or is it more the risks that professional indemnity insurance is meant to cover you for that keeps you awake? Uh, <clears throat> we're going to, in our next session, which belongs to in our business stream, uh, Paul Berg, who is the group director for professional risk of the brokers uh, Griffiths and Armour, is going to outline where the market is now, how it's got there, and how it might be possible to negotiate your way through it and get adequate cover uh, for the risks that you might be perceived to have. Um, he's going to discuss what architects need to know about the insurance market and indeed the insurance in industry, uh, and what architects need to think about in order to get decent cover. And after Paul has spoken, uh, we'll have a short response from Jonathan Hall, founder partner of Orford Hall, Monaghan Morris, who, apart from being an architect, also has a master's degree in construction law and knows the insurance and the uh, risks around uh, uh, construction very well. Uh, and then we will have a, a conversation and the opportunity for you to send in some questions. So, Paul, over to you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, wherever you're joining from, I hope you've enjoyed this morning's session so far. First, I'd like to say thanks to, to Jeremy and the wider WAF team for the kind invitation. Uh, I also look forward to the Q&A session with Jonathan afterwards, or at least I think I do. Uh, in the next 30 minutes, I hope to demystify perspectives on the issues that I would look to cover. I must begin by saying that my perspective is not one of the insurance industry as a whole. Uh, they are the interlinked thoughts that try to bring together the brief given for today's session. They are the personal views of a practitioner who is now in his fourth decade of intermediating between the interconnected worlds of construction and insurance. I don't know if it is coincidence that this talk has been scheduled for the first day of the 2020 meteorological winter, but most people attending this session uh, will be aware of current conditions within the professional indemnity insurance market and the fact that many firms are struggling to source cover. Of course, that's not a situation that Griffiths and Armour clients are generally experiencing, and I will touch on why that is the case. As a direct consequence of the industry issues, our phones are ringing and our inbox are filling with Teams invitations to participate in numerous calls and sessions with individual representatives from the insurance sector, the finance world and construction industry bodies seeking to discuss the challenges the property market are facing around fire safety risks. And the word that keeps coming up is crisis. What I want to do this morning is to look at why that crisis has arisen, what questions it raises and the challenges it poses for all of us in the short term and whether it ultimately opens opportunity for the medium to long term. First, I'd like to go back to 2017. We produced a publication, a risk management publication, Managing Risk in a Changing Business World. And the publication was compiled in collaboration with our clients and other industry figures following a series of roundtables held across England, Scotland and Ireland. The focus was on how to manage construction risk and the weaknesses that this consensus felt existed in a system that could be described as risk dumping. And those factors were identified, questioned and discussed in detail. 
in essence, we have an adversarial system where the risk is transferred under contract and a number of parties are then required to maintain insurances to cover the liabilities being imposed. We and the groups that were discussing the issues felt that in practice, the system was pushing unreasonable level of risk down the supply chain. The end client was perhaps not as protected as they thought. They were in fact almost entirely reliant upon third party insurances. And the hidden costs, insurance premiums and legal costs associated with litigation were masking an underlying reality. And there's a wholly negative impact on relationships potentially at play when problems do arise. And also in those sessions, the risk of volatility in the PI market was shared. Not only is the client relying upon someone else's insurances, it is a claims made policy. And it and the extent of cover needs to be there when problems arise or more correctly, when circumstances are notifiable to insurers. The publication was well received, led to some healthy debate, but ultimately nothing changed. Perhaps there was no perceived problem to solve. After all, the PI market was well capitalized, cover readily available, and at that point, most firms were in a position to meet the contractual requirements being imposed. So, where are we now? And where does that all leave us? We're not just seeing the normal changes brought on by a market cycle. We've seen an exodus of capital. At this point, there simply isn't enough capital uh, su supplied to meet the demand. As one recent potential client said when talking about his PI renewal, until we spoke to your team, I was looking for a product no one wanted to sell. So what, is, what does this tell us we're, we're seeing? For fir firms on this call who are looking towards the 2021 renewal, the advice has to be to start early, present your risk properly. It is going to be incredibly tough and unfortunately, it is highly probable that some businesses will fail to secure PI cover. But employers need to understand that this affects them too. Going back to the 2017 publication, cover is claims made, and if it can't be renewed or it can't be renewed at the same level, that creates exposure for everyone and has knock-on effects in terms of project delivery and infrastructure development. So how did we get here? The problem is that the insurance market is cyclical and it can change quickly. The image shows how the market moves in line with the supply of capital. When it's well capitalized, insurers write more business at less premium, but ultimately loss ratios begin to increase, capital withdraws for a better return elsewhere, a reduction in the supply of insurance is the result. In 2018, we saw the first signs of trouble with Lloyd's issuing a report identifying that non-US PI was the second worst performing class of business in their portfolio. Indeed, if syndicates couldn't demonstrate a route to profitability, they would be closed down. And the messages were coming through to us on that basis from the wider market. The argument from insurers was that an oversupply of capital meant that the cost of PI insurance had been on a downward trajectory for over a 20 year period and that by way of reducing premium rates and extended bases of cover. 
All this whilst the limited indemnity provided were increasing the exposure insurers felt and making them more susceptible to higher value claims. At the same time, there have been particular unforeseen events. Grenfell and the result of wider sector concerns around fire safety and that extending into wider areas of building quality. Uh, you, you also have the possible impact of COVID-19 in terms of the claims and wider economic consequences. Indeed, COVID is reported as potentially the single largest insured and uninsured event the market may have seen and come across. In Ireland, there remains the fallout from the 2008 Celtic Tiger crash, a legacy that's continuing. And we're continuing to see a push towards liability down into the supply chain, leaving consultants and therefore the insurers more exposed. We mentioned Lloyd's review of the performance of non-US PI. And whilst it's only part of the UK PI market, it is worth spending a short moment on that as performance is a reasonable measure of the overall market. The first thing to note is that the report did not sit in a vacuum. The review took place at a time when the wider insurance market had been hit hard. The previous reporting period, 2017, had been the costliest on record, including catastrophe losses from hurricanes Maria, Irma and Harvey, the latter being the most significant, uh, this coupled with 330 major cat incidents, including wildfires in California, led to a global industry estimate of insured losses in excess of $130 billion. And that's sort of the total economic losses from those incidents, estimated to be in excess of $350 billion. Even back then, there was talk of losses starting to hurt PI insurers, but the combination of surplus insurer capital with managing general agents and new entrants aggressively seeking to establish market share, combined with the buying characteristics of firms. We all remember, get me the cheapest quote. Is that the most competitive option that's out there? Meant that rates stubbornly refused to move in the upward direction that the established market sought. So the Lloyd's Decile 10 process implemented in 2018 for syndicates to look at their worst performing areas and lines of business, and they had to act to restore profitability. Non-USPI for architects, engineers, and other construction-related industries is captured in Lloyd's Risk Code E7, is one of Lloyd's worst performing lines of business. In 2019, Lloyd's instructed syndicates to limit the amount of new PI insurance they could write. Cheaper rates were withdrawn and some syndicates withdrew from the construction PI market altogether. The PRA, the Bank of England's regulatory function, has raised similar concerns. Either insurers must increase rates to improve profitability or withdraw. And according to report, by international broker Marsh earlier this year, at least eight insurers were no longer writing UK construction PI risks. Anecdotal comment, and indeed our own experience, suggests that the number may be significantly higher, but even this figure is dwarfed by the number of insurers who have simply lost appetite for many construction PI risks.
Grainfall is a human tragedy. Prior to that night in June 2017, the PI market view on cladding was one of quiet caution. Historically, cladding was a significant cause of, was a significant a cause of a significant number of individual claims because of water ingress, with insurers typically applying underwriting penalties where proposal forms indicated disproportionate amount of cladding work. This affected a very small segment of the market. Whilst there had been a, a number of relatively high-profile fires, notably in the Middle East and Australia, where external facade was cited as a contributing factor, we are not aware that prior to June 2017 that any insurer imposed wide-ranging policy restrictions in relation to cladding or fire safety issues more generally. That non-intrusive view of insurers all changed in the immediate aftermath of Grenfell. Insurers concentrate on trying to understand the extent of the potential exposures within their insured client base. It became quickly apparent that this was an exercise that would take a significant amount of time. And collection of the raw data necessary to assess exposure was not considered practicable within one renewal cycle, meaning a lead time at least a year before meaningful quantification could be possible. The raw data collection challenges were exacerbated by insurers' uncertainty of what questions to ask and what issues were going to determine exposures. Which cladding material was going to give rise to the most serious exposures? Which professions were going to be the most severely impacted? And where are the building regulations going to be changed? And if so, how? As an individual insurance event, Grenfell is significant, but in the context of a single insured event, the insurance proceeds would not typically be market changing. So what are the concerns of insurers and why have they reacted? So the scale of systemic problem, it is not an individual property that's under review, it is the, the wider estate that's a concern. And for systemic, think the response of the market to things like asbestos or pollution. It's a question of responsibility. And this, the slides here give a little insight to what we are seeing as some of the wider feedback. And anyone watching the proceedings will see the perspectives that are, are clearly becoming apparent. Themes responsibility, the lack of clarity, uh, even at this stage. And also the cost to defend claims and establish the extent of exposures will be significant in themselves. And in the UK, we also have the consideration of joint and several liability. All those factors are, are, are part of the overall insurance equation. Even now, when the request data has been collected, the costs to the insurance market will not be known for many years. Whilst the market is managing a number of claims relating to problems with external cladding, more notifications are considered likely in the coming years. We are some significant way off the limitation period and knowing with any degree of certainty at what level those notifications will ultimately settle will typically be six or seven years from now. Um, equally, what those matters will cost to defend is currently impossible to estimate.
Post the World Trade Center tax in 2001, insurance rates rose across all lines of business globally, including professional indemnity insurance. The lesson from that time is that the insurance cycle can see sharp increases in rates, which are generally short-lived, perhaps lasting 18 months, up to two, potentially three years, and then followed by steady declines over a much longer period, sometimes decades. In the current cycle, rates began to soften from 2004-05 onwards and remained suppressed until 2018-19, when certain areas of the market began to harden, notably PI. To put this into context, a surveyor or architect may have been paying 2.5-3-4% of fee income and premium in 2005, whereas over the next decade this fell to as low as 1%, with some architects frequently paying much less than 1%. At the same time, PI policies have been written with an aggregate limit of indemnity for claims during any one policy period, had evolved to apply on an any one claim basis. Uh, giving far more cover to the insured. Deductibles by way of policy excess also reduced, and then the basis of cover in terms of the insurance contracts widened from negligence only to cover full legal liability of risks, a far broader extension than had been the market norm several years previous. Which explains why following the market reviews, 2019 saw Appetite restricted, a reduction in capacity, rating increases, a correction of specific areas of poor performance, cover restrictions, certain markets stop writing PI altogether, and risk retention increased. On back of our marketplace conditions, insurers were faced with a range of problems. Construction PI market, which rarely generates an underwriting profit, i.e. the premiums received aren't adequate to deal with the claims that result. A new and unknown liability for cladding and fire safety claims, which has the potential to deliver very significant claims costs to an already stretched market. I even heard it described by certain parties as a potential capital as opposed to P&L event. And attempts to measure and insurer's liability may mean that one or more test cases need to work their way through the system in order to establish the legal liabilities of architects, facade engineers, surveyors, etc. This will be expensive and drive uncertainty. And decisions by the courts that increase exposures are likely to drive the remaining market away, whilst the positive impact on the liability environment may not be sufficient to have the opposite effect drawing new capital back in. Most recently, the COVID-19 pandemic will harden insurer views and impact profitability. At the very least, insurers will inevitably look to trim their exposures to their most loss-making classes of business. And this may bring PI back into discussion yet again. Earlier this year, in collaboration with our own professional body, BIBA, uh, key players in the PI brokerage community were asked to indicate the percentage of policies that they fire safety. The responses received covered 16,000 construction professionals buying PI cover, and restrictions ranged from exclusions to clinicures or increased deductibles. And 
What that concluded was that consultants undertaking any aspect of fire engineering, 75% of those had seen some restriction. Architects was 78%, surveyors 79%, and consulting engineers and other building professionals 84%. If we apply that number to the policyholders represented, that equates to about 10,000 policyholders. Who's going to do the work that they would have been intending to do? Now, there's an exclusion on their policy. At the same time, independent insurance consultant and industry heavyweight, Roger Flaxman, was retained by a group of prominent UK architectural firms to assess the current market position. And Roger comments are on screen. They are stark and pull no punches. When you look at the BBIS survey, all the metrics are sobering. And the mean average show brokers forecasting that 90% of clients will see premium increases, 62% will see excess increases, 76% see a reduction in insurer capacity, and 77% see new additional policy restrictions or ex exclusions. And the industry with the worst outlook on every measure is design and construct. They are facing a toxic mix of increased premium and excess, reduced capacity, and more exclusions and restrictions on cover. That change has serious implications for professionals in the prevalent model that places such entities in a key risk position. For architects, what does it mean? It means that operating costs will increase and like insurers to retain profitability, there are only limited routes available to preserve profitability. Increase income, reduce risk, select clients carefully, assess the exposures embedded in your business, and consider your safety net as a key asset and give that critical business tool the attention it, it deserves. Those who have successfully operated with diligence on those considerations mentioned before will likely be faring better in today's insurance market with consequent benefit and ability to select the right clients going forward. Navigating the market is clearly one of the challenges that many businesses are facing. And the role of the broker in managing that process is becoming increasingly important. The reality is today's industry problems, be that in construction or insurance, have been many years in the making. Even those who have sought to tread a moderate path have been subject to the compressing influence of procurement-led selection which too often manifested in lowest price as opposed to best value decisions. In the insurance market, how a client is perceived as an important, if often unappreciated, role of the broker. Like architects, the broker's profile, reputation and basis of operating are key components across the life cycle, be that project or insurance, and are critical to securing the best achievable outcome. At the moment, insurers are faced with instructions to limit new exposure to on their portfolios. The ability to call on embedded goodwill is therefore so important. We are finding that client loyalty and the goodwill embedded in our relationships has supported an ability to achieve optimal outcomes. We are not immune to the macro factors, but we are in a position to try and achieve the best outcome possible for clients. There is a responsibility to change, but for now we're continuing to see your behaviours, own risk contracts, 
bespoke forms certification. EWS1 is the latest problematic example. Demands on consultants to take specialists under their wing and accept liability for their services. And contractors unable to support PI requesting indemnities from their consultants. It needs to be understood that what is described as the current mandated system and strategy won't work and it will exacerbate current problems. And we may see more insurers review their position. On fire safety, BIBA recommended to the government and identified that the current position in the market is so marked that no single action will unlock the whole market. Indeed, even if all correction actions were taken, there would be insufficient market appetite to normalise the position. Taking the recommended steps, however, may reduce the extent of more significant government intervention, and five of those suggested include tighten and restrict, strictly define the duties of this fire safety engineer, insist that a template agreement in line with those used by ACE and RIBA uh, be used to govern the T's and C's where fire safety work is done, review PI levels for this type of business, put in place hold harmless arrangement between the fire safety engineer and the building owner, and understand and clarify the EWS liability position of all parties in conjunction with RICS, MCHLG and insurers. So there's a responsibility to change and that surely starts at the top. On fire safety, the recommendations to the government were that there is a need for intervention given the extreme market difficulties in this sector and suggested solutions broadly fall into two headings improving the environment for fire safety professionals and government intervention to take uninsurable risk out of the market. The issues clearly extend beyond fire safety, but today's crisis is a logical starting point. Forgive me for quoting Joe Biden, but given the times we are in and the challenge ahead of us, it seems appropriate. In his preliminary acceptance speech, Mr. Biden said, we need not by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That perfectly encapsulates what we've all been asking government and other major procurement bodies for a generation. There has to be a fair balance of risk and reward throughout the supply chain on public sector contracts, and it must set the example for how procurement should apply more generally. There are some very big questions and there is a need for proper industry-wide debate, but you have to start somewhere. And could government begin by making an intervention to take uninsurable fire safety legacy risk out of the PI market? How could this be done? Well, we have three ideas found on current practice in other areas. First, you could carve out liabilities in respect to fire safety work from the scope of a PI policy and passes to government, either via reinsurance arrangement or fund. This can be done quickly, and we have live examples in trade credit and film and media where government is intervening to solve issues of capacity created by COVID-19. The non-fire engineering fire safety liabilities would be retained by the PI insurer in the normal way. Number two, and similarly, is there a comparison to be drawn between professionals and contractors working to decommission nuclear installations where they are held effectively immune from liability for any nuclear-related damage caused by their actions. 
The liability fall backs on the site licensee of the plant, which is then backed off against insurance placed by the NDA. This is an example of how government removing a narrow type of liability from an insurance market that can't fund the exposures, whilst leaving the commercially insurable risks of non-nuclear exposures in the marketplace. Or insurers could provide a primary limit of PI insurance, and then government would provide excess of loss cover. Indeed, we understand a similar government back scheme exists in Australia, which faces the same challenges with respect to combustible cladding on high-rise buildings. Essentially, professional bodies apply to have a scheme recognised by the authority. The scheme legally binds the bodies to monitor, enforce and improve the professional standards of members and protecting consumers. Uh, in return, the PSC caps the civil liability of scheme members. But it's a responsibility to be shared. It's not just the responsibility of government, and it would be entirely unfair to single out one party. There's a shared responsibility to get it right. Behaviours in the insurance market point to some systemic failures which need to be addressed if we are going to avoid the kind of challenges that we are facing now. Those requiring insurance need to be confident that it is going to remain available and we need to come up with better insurance solutions. Yes, the public sector have a role to play, but private sector clients and the legal advisors need to wake up to the reality. Forcing risk onto parties who are not in a position to control, absorb or ensure the liability isn't clever, is not protecting your or their interests, and it's potentially creating even greater future exposure. And contractors and consultants need to better understand their exposure and learn to say no, being prepared to walk away if need be in certain instances. Back in 2017, we promoted the need for a conversation. It does feel that changes in the PI market are bringing the underlying issues to light and thereby forcing that conversation to take place. And that, if only that, can only be a positive. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for a fascinating uh, discussion and description of how the insurance market works and why it's in a very difficult position vis-a-vis uh, -vis architects at the moment. So I'm going to ask Jonathan Hall uh, to make a quick response to that, but perhaps in particular to pick up the point that Paul alluded to about how you as a firm of architects can make yourself an attractive proposition for an insurance underwriter. Okay, um, thanks Jeremy, I'll have a go at doing that. And thanks Paul for um, a very interesting uh, wander through, through the PI market. And clearly you've got a more international view on this than I have, um, because my view is very UK centric. Um, you know, you're a voluntary seller of PI insurance to, 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 to architects, you know, notwithstanding capacity, you know, you're a price setter. Um, and your ambition is to sell me or any other consultants PI insurance, but you don't have to. Um, you know, to me, um, lack of PI is an ex existential threat in, in, in many ways. You know, I need it because of registration. I need it to practice. My clients expect it. And as Jeremy said at the beginning, I need it to sleep at night. So my ambition is, is good quality, cost effective, comprehensive, stable cover at a stable cost from, from year to year. 
uh, and of course the fact I can obtain it says something to clients about how underwriters perceive my risk. Um, I think one of the key points, key words that Paul used was adversarial. Um, yeah, I'm insured through a mutual, so some of the adversarial nature can be parked, but I've still got a, a load of adversarial issues to deal with. You know, the opposing forces, you know, clients will draft very widely. DMB contractor clients draft equally widely because they're being dumped on as well. You know, the whole design and builders turn into design and dump. And, you know, the general culture of risk transfer by clients, which is you know, encouraged by their legal advisors over, over the last 30 years since I've been in business. You know, so clients can seek to transfer all the risk, as Paul says, but ultimately they will carry the risk if everything fails on the other side. So what I'm doing as, an, as a practitioner, as Jeremy asked, was, you know, I'm, I'm ensuring against the risk I carry. I want that risk to be minimized. So how do I, how do, I do that? You know, I'm trying to narrow the wording of my appointments in a world where everything is bespoke, all, all points are bespoke. I'm trying to narrow the parties I'm liable to. I'm trying to identify, reduce, and hopefully eliminate any uninsured liabilities. And I just want to put good risk management in place for the, for the, for the residual, um, residual risk, you know, good practice. You know, no, I was always taught that logic says that the risk is best held by those who are best able to, to manage it and to price for deficiently. You know, and as Paul alluded to, you know, quite often clients are best place to manage a lot of this risk. Um, because they've got control over the selection of the consultants, the instruction, the brief, the terms of appointment, and the financial strength of the people they appoint, you know, to deal with the insolvency risks. Um, so that's, that's that. I think the, the um, obviously Paul talked about a number of issues. You know, we all know that insurance is cyclical, but on top of that, this overlay of COVID and in the UK, at least the, the Grenfell issues. Uh, and I think one of the things um, although it may be a UK issue, Grenfell is important. And I think I've been following the Grenfell inquiry over the last month or so since the phase the stage two um, started. And I think, you know, notwithstanding the recent re revelations about, you know, the insurance, man the insulation manufacturers, I think one of the key issues that it's going to have to answer, and everyone's going to be looking at them to answer, is uh, how should architects have interpreted the building regulations? You know, were they clear? and we just misinterpreted them, in which case the PI insurers are going to pick up the tab, or were they unclear and ambiguous, in which case perhaps the government is the insurer of last resort, as Paul said. But after Grenfell, after fire, you know, what's the next big issue lurking? I think that's a big question. You know, in a way, we all design very safely for fire now, I'm sure, because we all it's the top of our agenda. What's the next big thing lurking, lurking out there? And actually, can this can Grenfell act as a catalyst to uh, explore new ways of, of insuring, as, as Paul started to allude to at the end? You know, and how does that, what are the forces? Uh, can they be commercial forces or do they have to be imposed centrally um, th that could force that sort of insurance um, to exist, you know, bring it into, in, in, into being? So that, that's, I think that's my initial response, um, Paul, um, to your very interesting and thoughtful thoughtful slides. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jonathan. I mean, it, it seems to me that one of the issues here is, is about the role of government and the role of the client. And I remember when I was in architecture school 35 years ago, the fire regulations, part of the building regulations, was considered to be the most important. And we had to do a big study of fire regulations. Um, 
But since then, uh, for understandable reasons, the uh, uh, rise of sustainability has become the biggest part of the, uh, or the most, seems to be the most important part of building regulations. So is there an issue here about how government intervenes in the market in an unhelpful way? And indeed, it could be argued that, you know, the risks pre presented by fire were uh, lost sight of, and that perhaps contributed to the Grenfell tragedy. I think that's um, absolutely the case. Um, and if, you've, if you're following, if you've been following Grenfell, you'll, you'll you know, you, we've, we've been hearing from um, Max Vorderman Associates and, you know, CDOE about how the, the, the key was this extra insulation. And I think the, 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 the tragedy is there's this, this interface between insulation and and, and, and the, the fire performance of that of that insulation. But I also think, coming back to the point about the next big thing out there, I mean, do you think it might be something to do with ventilation? I mean, COVID has brought this issue of ventilation to the fore. You know, we need well-ventilated buildings. And actually, this has been a move to sealed, well-insulated buildings uh, with, you know, mechanical methods of heat recovery and uh, and so on. I mean, could that just be something lurking out there? Because all those all those systems are built in, they're baked into buildings, you know, and actually if there's a problem with them, that's going to be a big issue. I think, think ventilation is potentially a, a, an issue in itself. I think the, the biggest concern that's been covered for quite a while within a lot of the industry press is building quality. Uh, the, the consequence of a single point responsibility uh, being manifest on cost and one of the coordinating factors through many, many projects is where those clash events occur, who has ultimate responsibility. And it's clear when it comes to the budgets that the, the models that are used focus in, in that way. But I think building quality is something that certainly in conversations I've had, uh, have been one of the concerns um, that, that has been picked up by Dame Judith Hackett and other uh, parties in the industry that have been reviewing the general status. So I think there are some specific issues out there. I think one of the questions that undoubtedly is there for the future is looking at how the market's structured and how an architect can best perform within that structure. Well, one of the things that, that came across, Paul, from your presentation is the need to, for insurance, and indeed the very nature of insurance, is collaborative in the sense that it's about pooling risk between many different parties. Um, and uh, I wonder whether, uh, in the spirit of collaboration, uh, one shouldn't uh, explain to the client, or the client might recognise the role that, that, that the client might perform uh, in uh, apportioning and in covering risk, whether or not it's actually ultimately backstopped by the government, and whether this would lead towards single project insurance. Is that a trend that you see? And if so, how could it uh, unfold? I think the whole allocation of risk and responsibility for risk is, is critical. And I think at the moment, Jonathan's point about risk being dumped effectively uh, down through the chain and this mechanism risk transfer being used by so many, um, the reality is risk isn't transferred until the liability is met. And what we're seeing now is that clients, 
themselves will be finding situations where their liability that they've created has not been remedied. Well, thank you very much for that. I'm afraid we've come to the end of this session. Uh, but for anyone who, who wants to pursue this, you can still use a chat box to talk among yourselves about this, this session. And anyone who's missed it or who wants to catch up with it can see it on the catch-up function uh, from uh, tomorrow morning because we, we need to upload all the material overnight. So, so don't think this has gone away. You can still access uh, this uh, material. But thank you, Paul. Thank you, Jonathan, for a fascinating session.